Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We're excited to have a guest here for episode 64, who we will not uh, introduce him just yet. We'll introduce him just in a moment in books and business here. But uh, before we get there, how are you guys doing, Tim and Andy? Uh, I'm, I am great, Charlie. You know, I was <laughs> just reflecting upon this, how you always ask us, hey, how are you doing? How are we doing? I want how you to feel right? good, Tim. I'm really good. I'm excited about the guest today. This is really exciting. Tim, you look like you need more caffeine, man. I, you know, that's kind of a regular state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, with that being said, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Oh. Let's talk. Oh, go ahead. You, you go first. Yeah. Books I cut you off. Business. Yeah. You we have them off. Books and business. Yeah. You, you say books and business, and then I say, let's talk about some books. <laughs> that's I'm the sorry, first I time I think I've myself. ever. Oh, I got ahead of myself, I think. Anyway, I'll go first. I'll go first. I have here, you guys can see it on uh, Zoom. Uh, the listeners, I'll describe it to you. It's Toward an Exegetical Theology, Biblical Exegesis for Preaching and Teaching by Walter Kaiser. And uh, this is a book that I had assigned in seminary uh, eight years ago-ish and thought it was pretty good at the time. And then right now I'm preparing a, a course for the spring semester that involves uh, exegetical theology and sermon preparation. And so I pulled that off the shelf and was like, man, this is really good. So if you're a student in one of those classes coming up and you're wondering why Kaiser was assigned, well, it's because I'm reading it now and I'm, I think it's really good to help you get from the nuts and bolts of exegetical process toward your actual outline for when you preach. And so it is, it is a great book. It has a lot of great reminders in it. If I was going to throw it on the scale, I'd probably say like a six, a five or a six on the, on the Thinkling's Goodness scale. So yeah, toward an exegetical theology by Walter Kaiser is what I've been reading recently. Beautiful. I'm up now, right? Sure. Go for it, Tim. So I've got here uh, something I was working on this summer, um, my Lady Wisdom paper. Uh, the book is Reimagining Delilah's Afterlives. As Femme Fatale, The Lost Seduction by Carolyn Blith. So who is Delilah and how has she been reimagined? Uh, it didn't really do what I wanted it to do or she didn't go where I wanted her to go. I wanted her to connect Delilah to um, the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. 
uh, in that kind of composite character throughout all of the Old Testament. Instead, she kind of looked at Delilah and how she's been recreated in popular culture and in um, the field of art uh, and how uh, even within written art, well, written literature, written literature, um, art, and then music and video, how uh, this character is recreated, which is still a little bit interesting and a little bit helpful to me just because it shows that this idea of a Dame Folly of a Delilah uh, is is somebody that's still talked about in our culture. But still, overall, it didn't really help me do what I wanted to do. I was wanting more of a biblical theology, and it was more of a cultural uh, survey. So I don't know. I maybe give it a one if it even hits the Thinkling's Goodness scale. But uh, reimagining Ooh. Delilah's Afterlives as Femme Fatale, The Lost Seduction by Carolyn Blythe. Does she... Uh know what it's like in new york city tim <laughs> hey there you don't, under, you don't understand the reference i'm making do you well played charlie i'm giving you two points for that one there's a no. song from about 15 years ago the opening line of the song is hey there delilah what's what's it like in new york it's, city anyway mm-hmm. sorry Tim's totally it's, blank i love <laughs> i love that we have an ot professor in the podcast tim i just love all your book choices i feel like i get i get a really it's one of the spirit. <laughs> I don't even yeah. know if you could call that a pop culture reference because it is quite dated, but you know, whatever. You know, I must right. say, I kind of forgot about uh, books and business. And then I was like, oh, I got to pick something. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm in my office. So I just kind of looked around and I'm like, oh, I haven't talked about this one yet. So, and I knew it wouldn't take long. So that gives us more time to spend with our guests. So cheers, Stearns. All right. So I'll dive in. So the book I'm going to talk about today is called Stuck in the Present. And it's a book about history by David Moore. Uh, Dr. Boyd, who was on our podcast last week, and I started the book this summer. And I said, hey, I'll read it with you once a week. We'll go chapter by chapter. And I promptly got one chapter read. And he's made fun of me ever since because I did not finish it. So I'm probably like halfway through it. And I really enjoy it. And here's a couple of, I'll just give you a couple of tidbits. Part of what David Moore is trying to do is to help Christians to understand that today we're looking at a lot of stuff happening in culture. But understanding it and assessing it is going to be more successful if you have an understanding of where it came from in history. And then if you can also think through the past and what happened in the past that's led to the future. Um, <clears throat> so he goes through and very helpfully explains, you know, look back here, what's happening. There's a reason to study history. He starts off saying, I find many Christians uninterested in the study of history. This lack of enthusiasm, as I will argue throughout the book, is not only a shame, but limits one's formation as a Christian. Ironically, paying attention to what is transpiring in the present does not give the proper context to evaluate what is actually transpiring in the present. We need a longer view to evaluate it. He goes on that route for the rest of the book, and it's very helpful. I've gotten halfway through it, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to finish it since I teach a couple of history classes here. I'm very, very interested, and I would heartily recommend so far what I've read. So I, I'm not ready to rate it, but I'd probably say it's going to be at least a four or a five. I'm, I'll be happy I read it, and I'll think that you should probably read it. So I put it in the four or five range for now. Uh, but a lot of really good perceptive thoughts about history. There we are. Okay. Well, let me give an introduction to <laughs> our guest. And our guest today is Greg Kokel. And I'm not going to introduce him 
because earlier when we were prepping for this episode, he said, no, 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 don't do that. That's a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> don't and, say all of that stuff. It's not necessary. <laughs> oh, let me let me just say briefly that he is the founder and president of STR, which is Stand for Reason. Stand to uh, Reason. That's oh, I'm sorry. Stand to Reason. Thank you. And... <laughs> It's a long, it's almost Friday. I'm, you know, let me take another right, sip right. of coffee here. <laughs> that's you have to that's change the acronym. That's okay. No blood, no foul. Yeah. No blood, no far. I, I said, <laughs> I said that to Tim just earlier today about something else. Uh, yeah. No big deal. So we have Greg Kokel here because we would like to discuss mainly, which is the content of this episode, his book Tactics, which Andy uses in his apologetics course. And I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. But before we get to tactics and STR, <laughs> we would love for you, Greg, to jump in on books and business. So what do you have sure. for us? Well, I, there's a, a couple of titles came to mind that I'll just mention. I'm sure each of them you guys are familiar with. And um, I will say this, though, when a book starts with the word toward or re-imaging, now Kaiser's great, right, but you know, toward anything. This is the titles you find at ETS for long, boring papers, you know, towards what, I don't even know what that means towards, but, or reimagining. I don't want to reimagine. I want to learn something. I just don't want to re, I didn't even imagine about Delilah the first time that now it's time for me to redo that in any event, <laughs> but you, you are focusing on history and, and that's something that Andy brought up. And I want to read a line from a book that was written maybe 15 or 20 years ago by Hugh Hewitt, who is um, a Christian guy who's got a national radio broadcast, but very in touch with culture. All right. His book, In But Not Of, starts out with this statement, the effective and mass communication of the gospel depends upon the freedom to proclaim it. I'm going to say it again. The effective and mass communication of the gospel depends upon the freedom to proclaim it. Now, what he is doing is in his piece, in but not of a great little, small little handbook, as it were. I love it. I still read it. I still read the short chapters because each one is a short vignette that helps me as a thoughtful Christian trying to make a difference in the world for Christ. All right. But he is focusing on people who are Christians that are becoming taking positions of professional responsibility of influence in the culture to make a difference for freedom and human flourishing that is a prerequisite for the robust proclamation of the gospel. That's my theme right now when I'm thinking about books. So I am reading two books right now, actually just finished one, and I'm actually 720 pages into the other, and it's 1,200. And it has a title similar to something else that's going on. This one is like 50, some 60 years old, the one I'm reading. It is called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer. Yeah. which is the classic piece of the period. The reason I think this is so important is because I, I, I'm, I like the Second World War and that whole era. It's very fascinating to me. I've done, read a lot of books about this stuff. But what I wanted to see is how that happened and the patterns of, uh, of demagoguery that we see there verbally and in print and uh, um all of that stuff that caused a whole people to move in a very, very, very terrible and destructive direction, all the people of Germany, for example, which then consumed a big part of our continent, all right? And the reason that I'm interested in it now is because of patterns that I see in our own culture that are deleterious to freedom, 
It's a creeping totalitarianism, and I don't use those words that word lightly. And um, they're talking about ideas. That's what happened in the past, and if we don't pay attention to the past, we repeat the past. And I think something like that is going on. With that in mind, there's another book with a very similar kind of title, which I haven't read yet, but I know something about. It's called The Rise and the Fall of the Modern Self. And that is doing exactly what you pointed out, Andy. It is trying to give a philosophical historical backdrop to all these things we're seeing in culture now that are so crazy and hostile to the Christian worldview and making it difficult for Christians. There it is. Now, that's also another very thick book. And uh, it's uh, Carson Truman, I think is the author, T-R-U-E-M-A-N. And Carl you, Truman. Carl, thank you. And um, it's it, for those who are philosophic, not phil philosophically minded, they don't care about that stuff, this is going to be a tough read. But this one is not a tough read. And this is called Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. I just finished this. And the reason that this this falls kind of between the, the two rise and fall books. In other words, it does track the ideology like Truman does, and it does talk about the propaganda that we see in all of the totalitarian machinations that we see operating with the Third Reich from 33 to 45, uh, when Hitler was actually in power, but it started before there with the brown shirts and the SA and then the SS and all the rest of them. And it's it's really frightening to see the same kind of patterns taking place here. Quantifiably, I'm not the only one who notices this. Uh, this is one of the things that Rod Dreher is sounding the alarm about <clears throat> because he has talked a lot with former Soviet satellite, I should say, emigres from for former Soviet Union or sa satellite countries. And they live here now and they are mortified by what they see because they remember what it was like. And in 1976, I spent five and a half weeks behind the Iron Curtain working with Christians in five communist countries, including the former Soviet Union, um, who were suffering terribly under that totalitarian state. So I have some personal context for this. And this is why um, it all builds up to really recommending this book, which is not a hard read. Uh, Andy, you look like you were familiar with it. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's not a hard read. But, um, and, but it, it's borderline terrifying. And um, it's not a chicken little in the sense that it is um, un, un, unreasonably or inappropriately alarmist. It is sounding an alarm because there is an alarm because there is something to be alarmed about. Right. And we all know this. You cannot read a single day of people who are watching this in the press because a lot of stuff the um, the legacy press is not reporting, but it's out there. And you see the kinds of things that are happening to people who are not, who are losing their jobs because they're not using the right pronouns, who are forced by their employers to be indoctrinated according to peculiar parochial divisive political views, for example, CRT, um, under the risk of losing their job if they are, do, do not subject themselves to the indoctrination. This happened in spades in the 30s and the 40s under the Third Reich, and obviously for, you know, 80 years or 60 years under the Soviet system. And it's happening right here before our nose, and it's not coming top down from the government. 
it's being enforced by corporations and Google and Twitter and Facebook and you know all that about. So what this does, I think it gives you a context for these things. Now, I'm not going to give this a 10 because I consider a 10 would be an evergreen book. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, it's been around for 75, that's a 10, all right? It's never going yeah. away, ever, thank God, all right? However, um, I think substance-wise, this is really, really important. And so, and the writing is excellent and it's easy to follow. It's not philosophically complex, all right? Uh, but it's like every sentence I almost wanted to underline because it was so good. So I would give it a seven and, uh, and I would give it like a 10 for content for the moment, the cultural moment. But it's not, hopefully it will not be relevant 10 years from now, hopefully. But of course, Brave New World, Huxley, and 1984, um, Orwell, those were in the 40s. And they are, were tremendously prescient to see what, to, to, when you see what's happening now. They were just a little bit late. Anyway. It's actually been a, a challenge for me as a bookstore manager because I've seen books like that and they're kind of outside of our scope in that it's not Christian, it's more cultural. Would that be a correct assessment? I haven't read that of, book. Of I Live think Not I By Lies? Live Not By Lies. I think I did bring like a few into the bookstore, but I was kind of like, okay. am I getting outside of my mission? Okay. And that's what I was right. trying to evaluate. All right. Well, so he, this is an important part of our discussion here because it kind of goes to this broader issue of a lot of pastors saying, I don't want to get political. So let me just offer some thoughts for you to chew on here. If our view is blanket, I don't want to get political. Then the question is, what do we talk about? Because everything is political. Everything that used to be in our purview as Christians, family, sex, child rearing, education, all of that, it's been co-opted by the left. If our view is, in a certain sense, um, just, uh, I don't want to get political. The minute we say that, then all the left has to do is co-opt any area and we have to wave the white flag. Right. And, and then make it political. And, and yeah. And then, and then what this does is it restricts our conversations as Christians in the church, our pastoral feeding of the flock to things like, you know, uh, exegesis of scripture, which is fabulous, but it isn't the only thing. Right. You know? I mean, but I can make a biblical case against socialism. Okay. Yeah. Does Dreyer make a biblical case or is he making like a, uh, historical case based well, on like the third I'll, Reich I'll or something? I'll tell you what he does. The first, no, the first two thirds of the book is a, is an assessment from, from behind Christian eyes of the cultural moment as it touches the issue of freedom to express our views as Christians. That's gospel stuff. But he's not quoting verses. He's saying, look what's happening. All right. For one, the last third is what the Christians did in Iron Curtain countries to survive and to flourish. Oh, okay. And this so has that would to do be really a, interesting. A, a, and well, the subtitle here is a manual for Christian dissidents. All right. But oh, okay. uh, this, so, so I, I mean, I'm, I, I I, I do not view his contribution at all as a um, as kind of a simply an, a cultural analysis that is interesting but has little to do with living the Christian life. If he's right, it has everything to do with the Christian mm. living the Christian life in the next 10, 15 or 20 years, okay? I don't I'm 71. I don't know if I'm going to outlive this dynamic. 
all right? Yeah. Because this is so entrenched in our culture. It came on publicly so strong in the last year and a half, but it's been going on for years. And if you read uh, Truman's book, you know that this goes back to the early 20th century. The ideas that found their footing in uh, in the 21st century and now explosively expressed everywhere in the culture. You cannot turn anywhere without not only confronting this, but having attempts of being controlled by this. And it's everywhere. Okay, so so this has ramifications for every Christian living out his life. You know, think Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What was his charge in the face of that? He had to live as a Christian in the face of difficulties and had to work those problems out. Okay. Now I don't I'm not saying it's going to get that extreme. I'm talking there's a type going on here, a parallel. Not an extreme, but in kind. And these parallels are really frightening. That's why I'm reading you know, verse by verse through the rise and fall of the Third Reich, because there's no more granular treatment of, of what happened from nineteen what twenty-eight to nineteen forty-five than what Shearer has done. And it's not for everybody, but it certainly tells the story of how this kind of stuff gets accomplished. And that's what Live Not By Lies is meant to do. Incidentally, the title is taken from Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn in 1974, oh. when he was ejected from the Soviet Union for unveiling the horrors of the Gulag, and uh, in his writings like Gulag Archipelago or A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, okay, they threw him out. But before he left, he fired another shot. And his it was an essay titled Live Not by hmm. lies. And this becomes an antidote for every Christian in the midst of a hostile circumstance. You, they're going to live their way. You may not be able to persuade them, but you can decide what you're going to do with your life. And you decide, Solzhenitsyn says, do not live by lies. But if you decide to do that, it is going to cost you. Yeah, I love it. I think you've convinced you me too. I think it's definitely within the purview of our bookstore. I've actually been struggling, you know, what if Amazon bans a title? Is that like criteria for me to just stock it, even if it's not according to our mission, yeah. just because then it's available? Well, by the way, you know they've done that. You yeah, know they, I know. They've done that I've been, and, uh, right. it's, uh, on the transgender issue, for example, and the ABA, right. the American booksellers. You know, and so the thing is, if Amazon sells, what, 70% of all the you know, hardcover mm -hmm. titles in the world, if they say we're not going to feature it, how is a, why would a publisher pick up an author who's going to write a book that's going to be banned from the market effectively. Right. So it's, it's, this is an example of what um, Dreher calls soft totalitarianism. You don't need mm -hmm. the government shutting you down. The, the, across the society, those cultural forms are, gonna, are doing a very good job of silencing dissent. That's awesome. Well, we'll definitely pick it up in our bookstore. And so if you're listening, then stop by the Faith Bookstore and we'll put it on sale too. Uh, one of the issues I will say with uh, Dreher's book, Okay, and uh, Vody Bakum had his book Fault Lines. Uh, these books are not easy for me as a bookseller to acquire, um, and they hmm. don't give me good discounts on them, and it's oh, actually okay. a little bit challenging. So that's just kind of I don't know. That's not necessarily the soft totalitarianism, but it's it's. Uh, well, I, I think it's, it it's a sign that the big publishers don't want to touch it. Well, it's do right now. Last I looked, it was about six or seven hundred in the Amazon universe. That's yeah, it's a big amazing. seller. It's been hot. Yeah. But, I mean, who's publishing it? Like Sentinel or something? Uh, I mean, who the world are they? Yeah, Sentinel. It, uh, I don't know. Sentinel. Hopefully they're not listening to this. No, yeah. no, but you know, think about it. 
So what? Nobody looks at the publisher if the book is up there on the top of the charts and people this are recommending true. the book. So uh, yeah. this is I, true. Yeah, so. good stuff. So I, I, I've got a little bit of a follow up, uh, Tim. If if you want to jump in on something again, go no, ahead. You go ahead. I was going to take the conversation elsewhere. You go ahead. Oh, I'm going to take it elsewhere. Well, not really. So just before before we just get into STR and your role there, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, and we're obviously fans of Lewis. And so you, you mentioned mere Christianity. But I had no just, idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, given the discussion we just had. And the the themes that we're seeing in modern culture. I just I want to ask: Are you familiar or have read the third of the Ransom trilogy, that hideous strength? Yeah, I've read all of that. Right. Do you do you see any? On that one. Do you see any connections from what Lewis maybe imaginatively supposed might happen in culture in that book to what's happening now? Because I've made that connection. And was not really sure if I ever wanted to put it in writing, but I, I think that it's pretty direct. Well, um, what 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 Lewis was trying to do, it's been a while since I read that book, but uh, what Lewis was trying to do is take an eschatological reality and then and then try to cash it out in imaginative ways, partly because the eschatological reality is rather general. All right. So how you figure out what's going on in the book of Revelation, a lot of different possibilities. Okay. Uh, the only thing I know for sure is a whole lot of people take gas really bad and we win in the end. I mean, I think that's a pretty safe <laughs> conclusion from there. Very general. <laughs> what Lewis is trying to do is cash that out a little more detail in an imaginative way. Sure. And, um, and so a lot of it is just simply his imagination, which is magnificent. Um, and I think what that book captures is a, 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 a scenario that is, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to express this. Something is going to happen along those lines, but not precisely, in my view, but not I'm not a post-millennialist. I don't think things are getting better and better, right? Because the gospel is going out. I think the other thing is going on. We're going oh, we're on the same the page there. Okay, all right. I mean, that's just like a. This is um. That's that's an empirical judgment there that I think we can all agree on, right? Historically, yeah. um. But um. So what what um I think that Lewis has done is he's taking some of these main themes that seem to be well justified by scripture, and then he's adding a lot of creativity to it. And um, I don't think he expected it to play out like exactly like he wrote. But I think he ex expected those main themes to play out that way, which is why he wrote the book. So certainly we're going to some of that totalitarianism that you see expressed in that book is certainly going to play itself out. All right. Sure. And uh, and I and even if if not eschatologically, though, I think long term, that's the case. We certainly see it as a reality. The, the Soviet Union, that system is gone. But for a long time, that was the reality for Soviet Christian citizens, you know, and those in the Soviet satellite countries. And, um, and so even, even if we don't attach that to eschatology, we still are attaching it to Christian living in this world. You have tribulation, you know, I don't, here's something else to think about, you know, you guys are all Bible teachers and I'm thrilled to connect with you on this, but um, the book of Hebrews was written to suffering Christians. The book of, Philippians was written to suffering Christians. 
The book of 1 Thessalonians was written to suffering Christians. The book of 2 Thessalonians was written to suffering Christians. 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy, at least, were written by Paul when he was in prison. You get in the picture here. So this has got to inform our understanding of what the normal Christian life is like inside the world. And in the United States, we have dodged the bullet for 250 years, largely. The rest of the world has not for the most part. I mean, especially extreme in certain areas, but, uh, and, and for, and for historically, you know, it's been really hard for those who are genuine followers of Christ who are not complicit with the world, that world system. And so, uh, this to me, it sets the stage for expectations for Christians at any age. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's starting to descend on us now, but we are not ready for it. Absolutely. So that's, we'll, we'll, uh, Hey, that was, that's probably the most robust books in business I think we've ever had. So you take the crown there, Greg. That was awesome. And we didn't even what? talk about my work. So look at that's great. I'm glad. Oh, to... we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Tim's, uh, Tim's sales depend on it, I think. So we, we better get there. So let me, let me ask, maybe pivot towards STR and your sure. apologetics mission. So a three-part question for you, and I think maybe chronologically is the best way to attack it. It sounds like a Baptist sermon. It is, and I'll have okay. a poem at the end. It'll be perfect. <laughs> oh, God. So, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But so, Horrendous. first, well, have an altar call. Maybe some of these other jokers can get saved. We'll see. <laughs> hey, we're, we're praying for them. We're praying for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, for, we'll start off with, so how did you get into apologetics? And that will lead to, so you, you're interested in apologetics. How did you get from an interest with apologetics to founding Stand to Reason? And, sure. and then maybe with that, you could tell us about the mission of your organization. And then I'd love to hear about some of the people you work with at STR. I, I okay. have here in my notes, I'll call them your STR cronies. Okay. So tell us about your cronies. But yeah, right. how'd you get all into right. all this? Oh man, there's a lot of questions. There. I got to keep track of them. I heard Elisa Childers, who wrote a wonderful book uh, called um, Another Gospel, a very popular book. She's got a very popular podcast. And uh, she said, to, I, I watched it earlier today. She said, the reason we need apologetics is because uh, the Bible demands it. And oh, no, the Bible commands it and the culture demands it. That's pretty clever I, aphorism. The Bible commands it. We all know that. And the culture demands it. And... I realized, though, I became a Christian 48 years and about three weeks ago. Um, even then, that was part of what drove me to apologetics. I, I Apologetics did not function in my own conversion, uh, like many of my colleagues, my cronies. Uh, but it did function in, uh, in, in afterwards in my ability to engage other people, all right? And that's really, really important to me. Uh, the idea that um, if I want to answer the culture and their challenges to Christianity, I got to do better than what I had. And I became a Christian in 1973. I lived in the West End of Los Angeles. I was at UCLA. And so I spent a lot of time in Westwood Village, walking the streets, you know, carrying on with people after I became a Christian and talking with people on the streets because there's a whole lot of people that were peddling spiritual, their spiritual wares back then. So it was easy to get in a conversation. And I realized I wasn't up to the task. And so uh, very soon after I became a Christian, within four months, I moved into a Christian community right there off the campus of UCLA, old fraternity house. It was, 
kind of transformed into a Jesus person commune. I, I, that probably sounds unusual for most people nowadays, but it wasn't weird. It was cool. And it was great for all of us, 120 people to get together with some very good education and teaching and, uh, and to learn the foundations. For me, it set my trajectory for, for the rest of my Christian life. Um, but that's where I was introduced to Josh McDowell and, uh, and Francis Schaeffer especially. He had the biggest impact on me of all. I actually met Francis Schaeffer in 1976. I was at Labrie. I had visited a couple times. Oh. That was when I was in Europe. Wow. And, um, and so, but I was deeply influenced by his work, and it, it, still, it still influences me. Um, I'm not a presuppositionalist, uh, but an evidentialist. However, I think that Schaefer was also an evidentialist with a sensitivity to presuppositions, and that's the way I view myself. So all of that kind of congealed as I was growing and getting challenged and wondering about the foundation of my own convictions. And I, I will tell you, I had, a, I had an interesting insight uh, probably about six or seven months into my Christian walk, and there I was at the Light and Powerhouse, which is what we called that place that I lived. And I was reading Schaefer, and I remember pausing and looking out the window and thinking to myself, man, this stuff really is true. What Schaefer used to call true truth, because he's distinguishing it from your truth, my truth, relativistic truth. In any event, I'm thinking, wow. And so there was, a, I'd committed my life to Christ, but there was a sense, a deeper sense of understanding of how Christianity fit with reality and answered the deepest questions better than any other worldview. And all that is just another way of saying it's capital T truth. And, uh, and so that has really, that, it was great for me to get that solid foundation. So this has been part of my Christian life. And then as I grew in my abilities uh, and my gifts, which is principally communication um, in the body of Christ, I, I, I tried to use what I was learning telling other people, whether I was teaching the Bible, which I did a lot of that, it, it, as my skill ability enabled me, you know, we started with small things, go to bigger things as you learn more. And, um, and also trying to tell people, teach them why Christianity was actually true. The reasons you could be confident that it was true, and the way I see it now is true the way gravity is true, okay? You know, if you don't believe in gravity, you're not going to float away. Right. Uh, if you don't believe in God, he doesn't go away. He's still there. If right. theism is true, yep. if Christianity is true in the sense that I'm talking about, of course, that's our task of apologetics. And so over the years, that's, uh, that's, that became a ordinary part of my life. Then when I was 20 years a Christian, I was working at a local church in Southern California, South Bay area, Hermosa beach, Hope Chapel. And, uh, and I'd been there for eight years as an associate pastor, ran a Christian ed program. But when I'd fill in for the pastor, I'd do apologetic stuff. You know, we had five services a weekend. It was a very popular church back then. And so that gave me a lot of opportunities to perfect some talks, talks I still use now at Stand a Reason. And then I was challenged in uh, early 1993 to focus and get out of pastoral stuff, which, you know, uh, that's not my gifting. I was associate pastor doing things that were my gifting, but being a pastor, that's uh, that's long distance stuff for people. And uh, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm more of a sprinter, you know, so I'm hit and run. I'll go to church and bang, take that. And then somebody else can pick up the pieces, you know. So um, I was challenged to focus in the area that I was most interested in and uh, that I seemed to be uh, capable in. And so that was the motivation for starting Stand to Reason. Uh, and there were a couple of particulars that were in place there. One of them was um, 
I was I had finished a master's in apologetics. I just started a master's in philosophy under J.P. Moreland over at Talbot, mm-hmm. and um, I, I was realizing all that time in my education that that we had the best things to think about, and we had the best thinkers on our side. We had hundreds and th- th- two thousand years of you. Know, you look at Copleston's series of uh, the history of yeah. of uh, philosophy, and uh, you know f- from the about the the time of Jesus, other than the ancients. Everybody up to the 19th century were almost every single one of them a Bible-believing theist. And uh, we had lots of good thinkers. But in the early 20th century, we'd abandon that. We'd circle the wagons and we let the disciples of Nietzsche and uh, Darwin and uh, Marx and uh, Dewey uh, inform the culture. And we had backed out. And uh, as Osginus put it, we hadn't been out thought. And we just weren't around when the thinking was being done. So this is something that I wanted to try in a very small way. In, in my expectation back then, to have an impact on, to start bringing thoughtful Christianity back to the marketplace, and um, and also doing it in a way that wasn't shrill. A lot of shrill voices. Remember this? This was uh, culture wars time. You know, the silent mm-hmm. majority and all of that. And there may have been a place for that, but uh, it, in terms of our voice in the culture, but that particular voice was kind of shrill. And so. Um, you know, we're not to be shrill. We're not to be argumentative. We're to be patient when wronged. We're to be uh, sensitive and gentle and uh, w- with kindness correcting those who are in opposition. So that was something, an ethic that I wanted to try to to model, to encourage, and to build. And so this was the, the founding ideas of Stand to Reason, May 1993. We launched our enterprise, and it's grown since then. Now we have 18 staffers. We've got four full-time speakers. We've had four different people we've sent into their own organizations, including Jay Warner Wallace and uh, Brett Kunkel and Scott Klusendorf at Life Training Institute and, and Stephen Wagner uh, at Justice for All. So we're thrilled to kind of be seeding the apologetics arena with more groups and professional people that are very qualified and to have had some input into their development. But we're still doing what we're doing, and uh, we're not an evangelistic organization. We train Christians. We're discipleship-oriented. But we train Christians to have an impact on the culture, to defend their convictions and in a thoughtful and a gracious but incisive fashion. And that's what we've been doing for a long time. And, uh, boy, God sure has been generous to us to prosper our efforts. And uh, 28 years now, and uh, I'll be, you know, like MacArthur's old soldier, fading little by little into the background, but I uh, stand to reason, God willing, will continue to thrive with new faces and uh, uh, new talent and new energy. Yeah, you certainly don't so... look like you're fading at all. <laughs> <laughs> you're energetic, and you said your age earlier, and I had yeah. to double take. You know, you're, well, you're quite... I think Tim looks there, older so. than you, to be honest. But... Oh, stop <laughs> it. So, you know, people say you're only as old as you feel. Yeah. I'm old, if that's true. <laughs> Yeah, so am I. Right, you know. Uh, or kids make you, you know, kids keep you young. Like I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. Oh, yeah. My teenagers, right? They keep you young. Who invented that phrase? <laughs> really, as somebody without teenagers, I guarantee you that. All right? That's probably true. Well, That's probably when you said, to, oh, go ahead. go ahead. My parents used to say, look at all these gray hairs. I got them from you, you know, uh, the kids. Or my mom said, you know, insanity is uh, hereditary. You, you, you inherit it from your children. You know, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. So anyway, go ahead. Well, I, when you when you said you're as old as you feel, you people say you're as old as you feel. I was expecting you to follow that up with, well, that's not true. 
yeah. But anyway, well, if that's the if that is the uh, the metric, then I'm in big trouble. <laughs> no, yes. I'm doing all right, you know. And I my my body's as creaky as anybody my age, but you know, I'm trying to keep my girlish figure and you know that kind of stuff. So uh, and and keep having an impact. This is my this is my goal is just to what I want to hear at the end, gentlemen. When it's all done, uh, said and done, and I pass over, I want to hear those words. Well done. Mm. You know, I want to hear those mm. words. It doesn't mean that I have to have a massive organization or anybody who even knows me or reads my books. That's up to God. But on my side of the ledger, I want to be faithful. Amen. So one last question here before we jump into specific tactics discussion. Okay. I'm sure, so you said uh, STR was founded in 1993, and uh, I remember that vividly as a two-year-old. And uh, <laughs> No, I was 13, Charlie. <laughs> Jerk. Yeah, you're, you're as old as you feel, Andy. You're as old as you feel. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so from 1993 to 2021, I'm sure that STR and your different engagements have taken you all over the world. You mentioned earlier yeah, that's right. being in Europe uh, in very unique times in history. So maybe just share with us some uh, stories from the trenches, maybe some war stories, you know, not a pun intended on the word war, but where, where right. has it taken you? What are some of the more interesting places you've been? Well, um, that's that stint behind the Iron Curtain was before Stand a Reason. It was 15 years before STR, but it really that and I also lived in Thailand for seven months or so working in a Cambodian refugee camp there. Uh, my responsibility is feeding 18,250 people that had survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1975 to 79. This was 1982 for me, but uh, th it was it was a magnificent experience. Um, for me. <clears throat> and since then, I don't know, I've been about, you know, 25 different countries as a, a worker, as a Christian worker, uh, making a contribution. Summer before last, I was in the Philippines, I was in Uganda, I was in Israel, I was in uh, Paraguay. Uh, so I got to, I had to move past my restaurant Spanish, which is adequate in Southern Cal, but it wasn't adequate there in Paraguay. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, I, I did a a TV debate, a national TV debate for an hour with Deepak Chopra, who is the number one new age guru in, in the really world, good. still is most recognizable. Um, it was a number of years ago, less gray than I have now. Uh, a lot of people point to that as a, as a, a, a benchmark conversation, not only using tactics, which Lee Strobel was involved in that enterprise. And, and he wrote the introduction to the tactics book talking about that event. I mean, that was really significant for me because um, it was, it, it, it isn't like, um, here's my, all the gotchas from that thing. You, people can watch it. It's on YouTube. Shouldn't be hard to find the whole episode. But the point for me was to stand up to a, a an individual in a respectful way. I always, I never called him GPAC. I didn't want to play to his brand. I always called him Dr. Chopra. But there were lots of maneuvers in that conversation that I write about in the tactics book in the 10th anniversary edition. I, I even added more about that because I had to maneuver very carefully and, uh, and, and tactically. And so I think that that is a, a showcase a circumstance where the tactics really paid off for me 
in a in a very edgy kind of circumstance. I mean, it's deep. It's Deepak Chopra for goodness sake, you know. And he he's one of the few people in the world that can he's recognized by his first name. You know, if somebody says and Greg, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> well, I like think Deepak. Kogel. <laughs> Even so, that would still be like, uh, who's that? So, um, so I'm outgunned here in terms of celebrity, and uh, and and also he's he's just really popular. A lot of people are really popular. However, he is he is, you know, I don't mean this in a in a impolite way or uh, unkind way, but he is, he is borderline incoherent when he talks about spiritual things. And this is the acknowledgement of almost everybody. And therefore, mm-hmm. he never gets challenged. So when he's all those mm-hmm. times in Larry King and all these different places, he just says his thing and then they move on to another person. They don't know what to say. You know, so um, in this particular case, um, he got challenged and it, it didn't go well for him. So I think this is one of those circumstances I think that um, I look back on and I, I'm I'm... I don't know. Proud of is the right word to say, but I think that it was a significant encounter. Okay, did you have something to say there? Um, Andy? No, I just want to jump in and say. So we show a clip of that in the apologetics class after mm-hmm. we walk through the tactics material, and one of the most helpful things is to watch you. You're you're asking him a question. You're just clarifying his point, mm-hmm. and he does he every time you got him. I don't want to say backed into a corner because it wasn't like you were trying to. But he would just he would just switch subjects, mm-hmm. and my students really identified with that. They realized, oh, that's happened to me before, right. and I didn't realize it. And it's been it was so helpful. And yeah, thank you. Cool. And, and it was really really helpful. Thank you. And so, sometimes you can't you can't let 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 them get away with that. In fact, I'm chuckling right now because I remember one particular point. And there was a lot of strength. There were a lot of things I could have said that I could say now that would sound really clever that would not have been appropriate in that circumstance. They wouldn't have been kind. Uh, they would have been too aggressive, you know, and that sometimes works against what we're trying to do, even if they're true. Gotcha. You know, these are not gladiator events. And this is something that's important for a lot of YouTubers, people who interact like that, who are Christians, to keep in mind. They're not gladiator events. We're not looking to draw blood. We're looking to make a point that's uh, appropriate. So uh, there was a claim that he made about how the Bible has been changed and it retranslated all this all the time. And um, so so I, I embraced that. I engaged that. And then he said, he said, well, you have your facts. I have my facts, something to that effect. And I said, wait, 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 wait. This is my field. OK, I'm not making things up. But Dr. Chopra, where did you where did you get your, your facts, your information from? Do you remember what he said? Newsweek. Newsweek. <laughs> Newsweek. Wow. Now, here's what came to mind. Okay. Dr. Chopra. I didn't say this, obviously, but Dr. Chopra, is that where you get your medical information too? <laughs> oh, I didn't say been, that, obviously. That but it would have been appropriate, right. you know, if I was yeah. looking to draw blood. But I didn't need to because, okay, it's like in my mind, I rest my case. He's already done it. Uh, one person put it this way. When the other person is, is, is making a fool out of themselves, get out of the way. Right. Just let them do it. You don't have to underscore uh, whatever. And uh, there was another point in that conversation that um, this is the suicide tactic. Okay, the tactic is when the other person is doing what they say you shouldn't be doing. Okay, that's practical suicide. Okay, and in this case, he was complaining because I thought I was right. You think you're right and everybody else is wrong kind of thing. Well, I asked him a question. I said, Dr. Chopra, you, you, 
you write lots of books and you have sold a lot of books. So I'm just kind of, you know, giving him that, right? He has, but he helped me out because his ego got the best of him. I, it, my point that I'm making is you don't sell a bunch of books writing about things you think aren't true. You write about things you think are true. That's why you're selling them. So in other words, Dr. Chopra, you believe you're right, just like I believe I'm right. All right. If it's inappropriate for me, it's inappropriate for you. That's the line of thinking where you exercise the suicide tactic. But keep in mind, so I'm setting it up. I'm just saying, so you you sold lots of books. <laughs> and he says 20 million. Oh, he gave you the 20, data. <laughs> he, yeah, 20 million. His ego got the best of him there. But you've sold, you've sold lots of books, right? Okay, 20 million. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Chopra. So in the 20 million books that you've sold, you know, kind of thing, it just gave me a massive step up in the point that I was making. But uh, anyway, uh, so those those were, those were I don't want to say fun. Those things are always challenging. You know, I don't walk into those like it's going to be a cakewalk. I do my prep. I'm serious about this. I take all these guys very seriously. All right. And I have some colleagues or friends in other circumstances that walked into TV situations, did not take their their uh, opponents seriously and got their heads handed to them on a platter in front of the whole world. Okay. These people aren't stupid. They, are, they ha have blind spots. They believe foolish things. Even though they're very intelligent, this is part of the thing. And our job is to try to help everybody see that. They're not going to see it, but being civil to them at the same time. And there's sometimes a cleverness to that. And that's the whole tactical approach, using the questions in a certain way, seeing things that others don't see, and then using a question to exploit it. That's the whole point of the whole tactical game plan. And I was able to use some of those things with with Dr. Chopra. So that's a standout, standout experience for me. Um uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, sh I'm trying to do an inventory of 28 years of things uh, that encounters that I've had. I've had lots of them. I'll give you one other, I'll give you one other illustration. All right. Because it's, it so powerfully illustrates um, a point of the book. And the point of the book is if you just get into the shallow end of the pool and use the game plan, which involves asking questions, very simple questions, like, what do you mean by that? All right, that you'll be amazed at what God is going to do. So the illustration that I use actually is just two years old. Two years ago, I was in Seattle. It was it was after I wrote the 10th anniversary edition. And it came out. So it's not in the book. This one's not, though a lot of other illustrations are. So you guys maybe don't know this, but I am not a morning person, okay? Um, and before my first cup of coffee, I'm an atheist. So I'm just letting you know that. Uh, so <laughs> I get up. There's the quote. There's there the is. quote yeah. for the tagline right, right there. there. Horrendous <laughs> again, right there. Yeah. So, so uh, I had a weekend in Seattle. I taught. I it was it's was a Friday night, all day Saturday conference. I taught both times. There were other speakers, but I worked hard. Sunday morning, I got to go and teach at a church there in Seattle. But I'm leaving my hotel, and uh, you know, I'm not awake yet. I'm dressed. I'm showered up. I'm, but I'm not awake. And all I want is my coffee and maybe some scrambled eggs. And I do not want to talk about Jesus. Just saying. So. I don't want to talk to anybody about any spiritual thing. And the waitress comes up to the table, and she is way too energetic for that time of the morning, all right? <laughs> oh, how are you doing? What a day. What are you doing in Seattle? I'm thinking, I just want this woman to pour my coffee and leave, all right? So I figured I'd get rid of her. Um, I'm going to preach in a church right after breakfast. Okay, there we go. Bye. Well, she didn't leave. She thought that was wonderful. Oh, that's great. Now, 
you guys know from the book that the first step of the game plan is to gather information. And the first model question is, what do you mean by that? So you want to know more about, you want people to articulate a little bit more. And this is a very, very natural approach in conversations like this. So she says, that's great. Why would she think that me preaching in a church is great? Oh, she must be a Christian. So I asked, are you a Christian? Now, notice that is gathering information by trying to figure out what she means. Since all it is, is a version of the first step, which we haven't explained yet, but I guess we're explaining it now. And she says, no, I'm not a Christian. Now I'm mystified. Why would she think it's great that I'm going to preach in a church when she's not a Christian? She said, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not. I'm not. And then she says, now the universe takes care of me. And I'm thinking, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so remember, I don't want to talk about spiritual things, but this is reflexive now almost. I think, yeah. and so I asked her, yeah. what do you mean the universe takes care of you? Is the universe a person? No, the universe is not is not a person. Well, then how does the universe take care of you? Oh, okay. I guess I guess God takes care of me. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But God is the universe, and I'm thinking inside, huh? What does that mean? You know. So obviously, this gal's new age. A lot of your listeners, viewers, are going to understand kind of the the rhythm here. And and like Deepak Chopra, there are a lot of things that New Agers say that it's hard to make sense out of. Okay, just a charitable way of putting it. And so it is an appropriate environment for more questions to get some clarification. And that's what I kept doing. Because every time she would say something about her view, it was, it was very uh, obscure and unclear. And so I'd ask her some question about um, to clarify. And so after a little while, she kind of got tired of clarifying her view, which never did get clear to me. And off she goes. Now, here's the postscript. At the end of the meal, she came up to me and she said this. She said, no one has ever asked me questions about my view before. Oh. And watch this. It got me thinking. Now, if you've read the, the book on tactics, that's my goal. I'm not trying to le lead a bunch of people to Christ. I'm not an evangelist. I'm just trying to do some gardening is the language I use, not harvesting. And I'm just trying to put a stone in their shoe to mix the metaphor. I want to annoy them in a good way, right? And that's what happened to this gal. How do I know it? Because she told me. She told right. me. Now, what did I do? I didn't do anything. There's no philosophy. There's no apologetics. There's no theology. No fancy footwork. Nothing. All I did was employ the very first step of the game plan, gathering information, showing an interest of some sort to this young lady, even though, note, I did not want to talk about anything spiritual. You want to get saved, young lady? You find someone else. Take two aspirins and don't call back. You know, that kind of attitude. So, um, but, but there she was saying. But it is kind of a philosophy. Isn't it kind of a philosophy? <laughs> I mean, it's a philosophy of education. And that's what you're arguing for. That's actually coming to like one of my questions. As I was reading through your book, and honestly, I didn't get really far. But um, the philosophy <laughs> uh, of What do you mean, obviously, I didn't get really Yeah, most I, people I, dump it after about 10 pages so I can follow. <laughs> I get it. It's not my discipline. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but you're like talking through using questions to instruct and to teach. And I'm just thinking Proverbs the whole way through. Well, you could think Proverbs, definitely. You could think gentle answer turns away wrath. A soft right. tongue breaks the bone. You know, these are all. And so there's a lot of attitudinal, stylistic things that you see in Proverbs. You think Jesus. Jesus 
Right. And like Jesus used questions. Something like 280. I have the number in the book, uh, you know. And um, also think Socrates if you want to get out of the biblical box. The point I'm making here by mentioning Socrates and Jesus, this is a human quality. It isn't like yeah. you got to be divinely inspired to know to ask questions. It just is smart. All right. Right. And uh, actually, what I said to that young lady is that uh, when she said, you know, nobody ever asked me questions, but you got me thinking. And I said, well, you know, if I had more time, I'd ask you more questions and you could do more thinking. That's what I said. Right. But I did That's have good. to go That's to good. my other assignment. I did give her a copy of this book, The Story of Reality, which had just oh. come off just a, couple, a year or two before it come off the presses. So I always carry one with me. And she was thrilled to read it, to, to get it as a gift. So she said she would read it, you know. And uh, uh, anyway, so that's something I was able to leave behind with uh, with her. And even though I didn't get into a lot of detail, sometimes people are upset. Why didn't you talk more? Well, that's not my style. I mean, in this situation, I took the opportunity I had. I used my game plan unwittingly almost, and God used it in a way, and I was able to leave something behind, which I think is a, a good idea if you're able to, uh, that they can follow up on. So uh, that's that was kind of my generalized approach, you know, and God used it in a really cool way, and I'm, I'm thrilled, thrilled about that. But I, d there is a lesson here, and the lesson is this isn't hard. This is yeah. simple. Yep. And even being ankle deep in the pool you can still make a difference with the Holy Spirit using this game plan. It's amazing right. when people don't understand what they think because they, they're deceived or whatever. <laughs> That's right. You know, just asking a question is serving your fellow image bearer in a way that will help them. Ho hopefully, Lord will use it in their life. Uh -huh. I, I really appreciate entirely. your book. I, I think I got it much to the chagrin of my bookstore running friend over here on ebooks like five bucks a long time ago on sale and i was not a teacher yet i was not a bible college professor and i just read it for fun and it was one of my favorite reads oh, it was so helpful and freeing and i think i'd just like to tell one story of a practical sure. way it helped me me and another professor were up in minnesota at a conference and we were eating in a restaurant and a waiter came up and so i'd read your book and it helped me think that way about what's going on around me and i would also read a book called share jesus without fear about sowing spiritual conversations another one so all that's floating around my head and the waiter comes up and he's got a big lion tattoo and the lion has a crown on his head. Hmm. So I'm a Christian. I'm thinking, oh, the lion of Judah, King Jesus. Oh, okay. Aslan. Hey, <clears throat> oh, it could have been that. I wasn't as into Lewis back then. I oh, should have okay. you know, thought of that, but oh, oh, I'll just ask because if you got a tattoo on that part of your arm, you're probably not going to be offended if someone asks about it. No, and of said, course hey, not. That's, that's an interesting tattoo. Does it have meaning? And I'm literally thinking your story about the witch in Wisconsin, you see the pentagram, you're like, oh, does that have significance? Right. And he says, oh, yeah, man, you know, like, I'm a Leo. You know? Leo the lion. I thought, oh, man, oh, king of the jungle. I'll get a lion tattoo. Not at all what I thought. Uh -huh. um, and I thought, well, how am I going to share the gospel? But thinking through this approach, I said, hey, man, you probably really find uh, the, the scriptures interesting. Have you ever heard about the lion of Judah in the Bible? And he just gave me this blank stare, but he was very interested. I said, oh, you should go study that. Uh, uh -huh. It's this really cool story about a lion. I'm, I'm telling the story of Christianity without telling it too much. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, that's maybe like Lewis, that's like a by stone. The way. Well, hopefully, like I wasn't, I, mean, I didn't know back then, but I wouldn't have thought that way if I hadn't read this book. And it was that's so great. helpful for me. Mm -hmm. So what was, at what point was there like a thing that made you think, I got to write this stuff down or 
Did you have an experience with someone that said, I'm going to write this book? What was the thing that made you want to write tactics? Well, I, I don't mind? know. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, I don't know if you guys are writers or not. I never we aspire to be. Okay. Well, here's a tip. You never start with a blank page. When you're going to, if you're going to write something, you're going to write something that you've been working with, at least the ideas for a long time, hmm. teaching and whatever. When I say a long time, I don't mean like 10, 15 years, but you, you, you have to, you have to have a confidence that what you're going to write is uh, substantive. I mean, what, 60, 50, 60,000 words. That's a lot of words, you know, you got to f- cover the bases and it's got to be useful to people. And if it's uh, something that is meant to be practic- practical or utilitarian in Christian, uh, in, a, in a Christian circumstance like tactics is, it's got to <laughs> <gotta> work <laughs> kind of thing. You know, so I had, since I've been on the radio for 32 years, I've spoken on, um, what, 80 different college and university campuses, had lots of conversations with people. I, um, I, I, I've ha- had lots of engagements that I've had to maneuver through and figure out how to do it most effectively, at least the most effectively that I could, given my responsibilities. And when I say most effectively, I don't mean how many people I lead to Christ, because that is not my effectiveness. And I'm not trying to be pietistic here. That, that, that's what God does. Uh, on the other hand, I do have a responsibility. I have to communicate the truth as faithfully, as clearly, as persuasively, and as graciously as possible. So that's my focus. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be thoughtful. I'm trying to make a good use of the time and uh, try to be persuasive. Okay. And as I'm working on that, I realize <clears throat> that there are some ways that are more effective to do that than others. And this is where you know, I started realizing, well, some of those views are self-refuting. Oh, suicide tactic. Some places, people just got their facts wrong. No, it's not the case that religion has caused more bloodshed than any other thing in the world. I mean, please, not even close. Okay, there's the just the facts, ma'am, kind of uh, um, tactic. Or uh, Francis Francis Schaeffer taking the roof off. Okay, that's like a, a reductio. So, okay, if your view is true, then this is where it leads. Are you okay with that? And back to Andy, your reference to the witch in Wisconsin, who said that it's okay to kill babies. Her language, by the way, yeah. her wording. It's okay to kill babies if they were con- if they were conceived by incest. I'm chuckling because it's just so bizarre. But that's what she said, and she didn't bat an eye. And so that's when I said, well, if I had a two year old standing next to me here, who had been conceived by incest, on your view, I should be allowed to kill kill this two year old. Is that right? So notice that's a question too. It's a clarification of her view. Maybe I got it wrong. I didn't. And that stopped her in her tracks. She had to think about it. What she ended up saying was I'd had mixed feelings, <laughs> mixed feelings about killing the two-year-old, right? But that was a concession. So at least I got her thinking. And um, and so so there there's that's the taking the roof off tactic. So these things just came into play. I'm trying to think. The Witch in Wisconsin was before I, obviously before I wrote the tactics book, because it's in the tactics book, even the first edition. So I, uh, uh, these are things that I just found useful. I wanted to say in the heat of battle, but if you follow the, 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 um, the sense or the, the, um, it's the word I'm looking for kind of like what I'm after with the tactical approach is I don't want to have any fights anyway. I want to have a nice casual conversations that are effective. And, uh, and that's, that's exactly what employing the tactical game plan allows people to do. And I have had so many people, 
explain, tell me, and this is the most common response that I get regarding the book, is that this book changed my life. And, you know, this is, that's kind of, in a way, it's kind of weird. Like, that's what you're supposed to say about the Bible, right? But I, I'm humbled and gratified. And I'm not surprised in a certain way because that these techniques changed my life too, in the sense that it totally altered the way I engage other people. And I think altered my effectiveness. And I wanted other people to experience that as well. And so I started teaching on it. And the more I taught on it, the more I refined the ideas. And then, then I built, did a workbook on it with a video series. And this all became the fodder for a final book size treatment. So little by little hmm. by little, you're expanding and developing. Um, and it's the same kind of things you guys do with topics that matter to you. You start, maybe do a sermon, then you think next time around, well, I can expand on this, do three sermons in somebody else's church this time. And then you think, well, there's more here. And then you maybe write a few articles about it and whatever. And so that's kind of how this thing grows. Then when it's time to sit down and, and try to get this information out to the most people, you, you make your case to a publisher and hopefully get a contract and then off you go. So that's kind of the genesis and the the final, you know, birth of the uh, and tr- birth pangs and travail of of this this particular book on tactics. Yeah, that's great. I'm actually working on a book right now, and um, I hope it doesn't that. start with the word toward. No, <laughs> or, or reimagining. Not that one either. Okay, that was good. so just, good. Job, just just checking. Okay, it's a moment I'm just going to relish in right now, Tim. I just <laughs> I love this so much. Song, hey, songs for singles. By the way, some people do not think through authors. They, I have friends who send me their manuscripts and their things are working. I said, you know, you got a good idea here, but your your title stinks. Title stinks. It mm-hmm. does. Hey, you know who told me that? Jay Warner Wallace told me that about the story of reality because that wasn't its original title. Really? Yeah, yeah. it was Credo. I believe, you know, and uh, huh. then it was subtitled The Story of Reality. And, and and Jim sat down with dinner with me. You guys know him from Cold Case and all that other stuff. And I'm, we've been friends for a long time. He said, he said, you know, he's a, he's a cop, right? So he, he you can throw him to the man. He's going to throw you to that. No problem. He said, dude, you can't write, call that book Credo. That's a lousy title. Nobody's going to read that title. Some theologian kind is going to read that. Nobody's going to pick it up. And he's right. You know, that was such a good point. And within 60 seconds, he had convinced me. So what I did is I, 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 uh, I, gave the, um, I gave the subtitle center position, the story of reality. But then I had a subtitle, and I got the subtitle from the first paragraph, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. So when I submitted that to the publisher, he said, this is too long. And I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. We're going back and forth with emails. And I said, Ryan. And finally, I said, Ryan. He said, how about we just say everything in between? Then we can get everything important. We can get a little word up. But it's not about everything in, in between, like the beginning of the world, and the end of the world. It's not a history book, all right? Back and forth. I said, Ryan, just read the title out loud. The story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happened in between. Well, it's got a nice euphony, I think. Sounds good. Got a good rhythm. He must have read it out loud because he got back to me and says, that works. And so, it, I mean, he that, was done fighting. <laughs> yeah, he was done fighting, but that it was an award winning book as it turned out. Yeah, and good. Um, thank God. And uh, I remember Oz Guinness sent me a note and he said, I like that title. <laughs> good. So, Jim Wallace, you know, he, I mean, he knocked me down. 
He said, this, this is not a, so titles are important. All right. Just saying. That's it. Marketing. Hey, I got a question for you. Sure. So coming back, I'd say um, the big point of your tactics book is trying to discuss and use questions to teach uh, or to point, show people problems in their worldview. Uh, would that be like that, well, that okay. would be one aspect. I mean, it's a big aspect of it. If their worldview okay. is a problem, so yeah, we want to try to point that out. Right. So I'm um, uh, sometimes I, I would say that I would agree with you. Okay, I'm I'm with you. All right, and we need to use question. I I think that Proverbs and Jesus exemplify that. Sure. Sometimes, however, somebody has completely rejected truth. Maybe they even once believed and then they've turned away from the truth, and so. Um, I guess uh, I've always been under the belief that you would maybe take a little different approach. Um, I was even talking to a colleague and I'm like, well, I think every once in a while, it's a rarity. Too many people go to, you use the metaphor of D-Day, too many people go to D-Day like right away. And what they're doing is they're beating a simple person. And what they need to do is get them to think, which is what you're advocating in your book. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's like you're supposed to beat a scoffer to teach a simple person. Um, and I don't know if D-Day is what I think it is or what does it mean? What do you mean by D-Day? Because I had a co conversation with a colleague and I'm like, I'm not saying you get angry, but I mean, you see Jesus telling people you're whitewashed tombs. I mean, he's not saying very nice things about them. So, yeah, uh, right. Um, well, when you say D-Day, are you referring to something I said? Well, or you use the illustration it, about diplomacy and D-Day. We need to be. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it is something I say because I want our engagements to look more like diplomacy than D-Day. And partly right. be, this goes back to my comment earlier where I said, gee, you know, things, it was, everything was D-Day, right? For Christians. All right. It, it was always a fight. And a lot of Christians didn't want to get in a fight. So they got out of play and they're sitting on the bench. And those are the ones I'm trying to mobilize to get back into play so they can be gardeners effectively don't worry about harvesting because you're not going to have a hard harvest unless you do good gar gardening. All right. And if the gardening is done right, the harvest takes care of itself. That's my conviction. You don't have to have altar calls. That's a, that's a 20, that's a 19th century development. Anyway, you don't have altar calls in the new Testament. People aren't receiving Christ. What you have is the gospel proclaimed and people believe, you know, I'm not against them, but if we are locked into that, then that's a problem. But it is important for us in the way we engage people. <clears throat> now, Jesus did speak harshly to some people, and it was a very unique group of people. And I think that there are times when it's appropriate to do that. Uh, Jesus' judgment was pretty good. Right. Uh, mine is not as sharp in circumstances like that. So the way that kind of thing will play out for me, is not you brood of vipers who who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. You know, I've done that kind of thing before. I I once I once said burn damn you burn to a non Christian guy at the okay burn damn you. You know, I don't think I became a Christian, but um, the the I think that what we can do is we can we can we can accomplish something forceful by the power of our uh, of our communication and the points that we're making uh when i make certain points even using questions uh and like the one i just role-played there with the witch in wisconsin there okay so what you're saying on your view i should be able to kill this baby all right 
Now that's like, you know, maybe if I, what are you crazy? You know, I could say something like that and it would be entirely accurate, but it wouldn't be as, as uh, it was shrewd. Remember, Jesus told us to be shrewd, gentle and shrewd. All right. And Jesus wasn't always gentle. So I understand that there are times when we might be more aggressive, but I don't think Jesus was mostly more aggressive. I think that he was shrewd much of the time in the way he answered others' challenges and in the questions he asked. So I'm taking that as an MO, all right? Sometimes you get in somebody's face, okay, yeah, I think there's a place for that. I'll tell you the times that I've done it though, I've just said to people, I said, listen, for example, Brad or Fred, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think you're being honest with yourself. And I'll yeah, tell you why. that's good. I think that's intellectual dishonesty. All right. So now I'm not, you know, poking him in the eye, but I am, and I'm not even thumping him on the chest, but I am putting a little heat on, right? I make, I, I'm, I'm holding his feet to the fire regarding what he says he believes. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, th that I think so yes, there is a place for aggressiveness, but I think that can be expressed in different ways. And if we want to be like Jesus, okay, in those circumstances, we got to have the judgment that Jesus had. Most of us don't. I'm not saying there's no place for it, but that's precarious. Yeah, you have to be careful who you're talking to. You don't want to beat a, a, a simple person. They, yeah. They're the person that that you're really arguing for. I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. That's good. Yeah. And maybe for our listeners, we should just remember, remind them that when Tim says beat, it's talking metaphorically, like no right, one yeah, here we're not the getting out say, a rod. Get in a fist fight. <laughs> Are we sure about that? I'm sure about that, Charlie. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I have another question. Sure. The, the verse Here he goes. In, See, tactical approach. He's already internalized. Oh, yeah. it now. He's going after this, me. I got to be careful. So, so great. No, no. This Where's is more about. I'm, I'm posturing myself as a learner. You know. Um. So, First Peter three fifteen says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can hear that verse, and you've been exposed to apologetics resources like. Uh, the arguments from classical or the evidences or even the tag argument for precept. And you can go in a lot of different directions. Um, you got the design arguments, you got Lewis's moral argument. There's all kinds of arguments out there. And so sometimes I think a Christian can hear that. And then the first thing they're going to think is, man, I don't know all of this. Um, should, is that verse saying that if you don't know all of those things, you're you're failing as a Christian, and you then need to go and get a master's in apologetics. In your opinion, no, I I don't think. What that, would you do with that? I I think that's that's Peter's way of offering an exhortation that um, we we need to be capable in some sense. All right. Now um, I'm a woodworker. Okay. Uh, I read in a magazine recently um, a, 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 a very experienced woodworker's a view about acquiring tools. Now this isn't a view that I have. I've had, I have practiced myself, but his point was don't buy a tool until you need it for the project you're working on. Mm. All right. So you don't need a chop saw until you're ready to chop things. You don't need a table saw until you're ready to table saw things. Now it might be, or a router or any of these, any of these things. Okay. Now I, like, like I said, I, I, um, uh, I bought a bunch of stuff I don't need yet, but one of these days I'm going to use it. But I do think there's some wisdom here for the Christian. 
if the Christian has the idea, understanding what Peter said, and it's not just Peter, that's one iteration of it. There are a number of other iterations, not so much in commands, but in example. We see Paul, Peter, Paul says, I was appointed for the proclamation and the defense, defense. of the gospel. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't see that until about six months ago. Somebody pointed out, I said, oh man, how did I miss that? And so, um, so we know this is part of our Christian life. So one of the things about an ambassador, we have a thing called an ambassador's creed. It's actually at the back of the book of tactics, you know, 10, 10 of the virtues, the intellectual and personal virtues of a good ambassador. And, um, and they are, one of them is that we are ready. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's on page 266, if you look at there, uh, Tim. In any event, we're ready. And, it, and, and as I describe what we mean by that, <clears throat> this goes to your question, Andy, is that we, are, we, we, we try not to be stumped by the same issue twice, mm -hmm. the same challenge or question. So we don't know what to bone up for, but if we get involved, we're going to find out really quickly. Maybe we're running into a, a lot of atheists, maybe a lot of uh, gender dysphoria types who are hitting, pushing back on that kind of thing. Well, that's where, okay, that, there's where you start. <clears throat> Try to learn how to answer the questions you're being pressed on at the time, and then build from there. It's it's a it's it's a lifetime enterprise. Just, I'm chuckling because I'm thinking of woodworking. You never can have enough clamps. I mean, that's a famous saying for woodworkers. You know, you always can add more, and never have enough tools. You can always add more. But um, and the same thing here. You know, you can get as thoroughgoing as you want with this kind of thing. If you're satisfied with engaging people who challenge you and you're not able to answer and whatever, that's your view. Okay, well, but I suspect most people are not happy with not being able to answer challenges. And this is people show up, uh, it's called my show, and they show up at our events because they're looking for the answers for the questions that they're being asked that they can't address. And sometimes this is hard on their own confidence. And so a lot of what we do at Stand to Reason is when we give answers to challenges, we have in mind the Christian's confidence as much as the non-Christian's mm. skepticism. Mm. All right. And uh, this is one of my points in why apologetics are important. First, it's a commanded, and that's what you're referring to. Second, Jesus and the apostles did it all the time. Third, it works. Jay Warner Wallace, there's your great mm -hmm. example. But fourth, apologetics will help you answer the toughest critic you'll ever face, and that's you, one's own self. So uh, I think people should read, take, take instruction from Peter. Um, incidentally, that verse is in the context there of being persecuted, by the way. Who's going to harm you for doing good, yeah. is what he says, yep. like rhetorically. And then it's like he thinks, well, wait a minute, there are some people that will harm you for doing good. <laughs> Okay, so sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and make a defense. That's kind of the where he goes with that. Yeah. Um, being a blessing, not returning evil for evil, but a blessing instead. That's all part of that passage. So we're going to run into rough times, and the rough times are going to cause us to doubt sometimes, uh, and uh, it's going to make it difficult for us to answer our oppressors. And uh, Peter says, be sure that you get what you need. That's, that's very helpful. I think when I started this uh, teaching apologetics, and I'm, I still consider myself a learner. I know I know bits, but I, do I have it to where I can? I'm with you on that, by the way. You know? I'm with you, quite honestly. But I, 
I really like the, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but the situational way you're explaining that where I'm in a situation and I need this. So I'm going to go find that information. Yeah, and honestly, right. we're living in a day where there's more apologetic resources than I think they're probably, I don't know, maybe this is overstated, but ever has no, been. No, you're not Christians. overstating it, especially with and the I technology that, to make it available. Yeah. And you're like your app. Um, I love your app. It's, Thank I can you. open up all kinds of resources. Uh, we have books, Kindle, all that. So I do think that's been very, very helpful, but that's, that's nice because it doesn't makes it not seem so huge. And, uh, like I have to know it all right now. I had a professor once, um, we, it was old Testament seminar in seminary and we were studying like the Exodus dates and Joshua and all of us are kind of rolling our eyes. Like, why do we, need Oh to man, that stuff, just sounds you know? so good. <laughs> I just love it. This is so beautiful. T- Tim okay. just woke up. <laughs> That was that was so good. I love this so much. Andy, but, who was the prof for that? Was that here at Faith Hart- or Central? Yeah, it was Dr. Hartog the third. Yep. Yeah, okay. So he when he taught Old Testament seminar, and so we're, a couple of us, I don't think it was me, I want to say. It was someone else was like, Do we really need to know like the Exodus state and blah blah blah? And he, he said this. He said, you know, just watch out. Um, not watch out. He's like, just pay attention. You're going in because these are all guys going to pastorate. He says, you, you don't just like throw this stuff out willy nilly in your churches, but sometimes like you'll learn something and then watch God will probably have a reason, mm-hmm. like something that's going to happen in your path. And sure enough, like the student who asked the question, like they went back and they had an opportunity to use it the next week. Sure, and I right. also think of your example where, uh, in it's either in the book or one of your videos where you said someone came up to you and said, Hey, I got a friend who's a Buddhist and I, what's the best book on Buddhism? Yeah. And your answer was, why do you need a book? Just go buy them a cup of coffee. And so that's all right. of that situational awareness, right. I think that's a really helpful tip. That's really No, I agree. Me. Yeah, that is exactly right. Um, and um, in, it, you just kind of respond to the circumstances. I mean, Jesus, uh, <clears throat> I just read Matthew 10 yesterday, and this is when uh, there's a lot of stuff there that's really appropriate for, uh, for us now. Jesus' warning about the opposition. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. He says it three times in, in different he, within six verses, <clears throat> but he's sending he's sending his guys out. Well, what do they know? Not a lot. This is the first missionary journey, but it's when they go out and they use what they got, then they come back and they know what they don't got that they need, and yeah. that's the way it yeah. works. Yeah, you know? that's really good. This is why I, I do talk about getting into the shallow end of the pool. You don't need to be an Olympic swimmer to get wet. That isn't how it works. You get out there and you, and especially the tactical game plan provides so much safety because you're asking questions, mm-hmm. not making claims, at least initially. And that, and that is what, uh, and that's what provides protection because you're just trying to find things out. Tim. So, I mean, that right there, why is it? Oh, I don't know if that's a question I want to ask. The, the, the character of, of the person. Okay. They don't want to share or they don't want to break out of their mold. They don't want to ask the questions and get involved in it because they know they don't know, or they don't know what they might run into. All right. Or they're just afraid. They're, they're afraid. Okay. Right. The fear is of course a huge component and that Jesus says, don't fear them. And then the whole concept of the fear of the Lord throughout the old Testament. I mean, but anyway, aside from that, I want to like the character of, uh, of me, all right, the character of our listener. What what would be like the the chief character trait 
their chief virtue, maybe would be the word for it, that's going to help them to do exactly what you're doing there? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I find myself diving here for the uh, Ambassador's Creed and seeing what words I have there, because there's 10 of them. Um, what? Well, Peter says gentleness and rever reverence, okay? Uh, Paul says in first, in 2 Timothy 2, you know, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but patient when wronged, all right? And I, I, I don't know if I got one word, but something in that arena, when when <clears throat> when you are when you are generous to another person that you clearly disagree with, if you're patient, your uh, your reverence—that's that reverence, not the right word, but what I say, gentleness and reverence. Yeah, I guess that you're gentle with them. I mentioned from Proverbs, and you know, Tim, you're a student of Proverbs. It's obvious. Uh, a, a soft tongue breaks the bone. A gentle answer turns away wrath, okay? And uh, lots of verses that are like that, okay? It's smart to do that, but it is also, it, it is virtuous and it is productive, all right? And I find that when I engage a person in a thoughtful way and I'm, I'm trying to uh, not, not draw a line in the sand, not, not being bombastic with them, bombastic, mm -hmm. all of that stuff, uh, it just goes better. Yeah. Uh, and even, mm -hmm. hey, look, at I, I even t tell people sometimes, look, you don't have to answer to me on this. I just want you to think about this. So I'm, I, I have very limited goals in a conversation. Like I mentioned earlier, I just want to put a stone in their shoe. I want to, as I say, annoy them in a good way. I want to get them thinking. All right. And, and then I say, okay, here, just think about this. If physicalism is true, you're an atheist. How, how do you avoid determinism. Well, we don't avoid it. Okay. We are determined. Okay. Then why are you, why are you arguing with me about believing your view? If I have no choice to believe it for good reasons, what are you going to get? You're going to get what I call Simon and Garfunkel, the sounds of silence, right? You're going to get, uh, because they have never thought about that before. And I, you know, Tim's thinking, see Tim going, wait a minute, did I miss? No, I'm sure you guys all got the point. If if the universes meet all the way down, it's just molecules clashing in the universe. This is just sophisticated dominoes falling. So even the belief, this is for the rest of your listeners, because uh, I can move fast with you guys. I got to slow down for them. If it turns out that it's just dominoes falling, then all beliefs are, are another domino falling. That's a result of a prior domino falling against me. I believe something because I've been physically determined to believe it. So then what's the point of arguing? Because I'm not choosing my beliefs based on evidence. I'm just believing whatever. That's why if, phys if, if determinism is true, which it may be, <clears throat> you can never know it. Because there is no knowledge in determinism. There are just beliefs that are had, not for reasons, but rather because of some physical condition caused you to believe that. So that's a real problem with atheistic materialism. So I'm going to put that out there for them. And a lot of times I'm going to get like blank looks right? because they've never chewed on that. I said, look, you don't have to answer me right now, but I want you to think about that because mm -hmm. if you're right, if there is no God and there's nothing but the physical world, we're all a bunch of dominoes. How can you know that? Okay, there you go. That's all right. You don't have to. So what I'm trying to do is disarm their defensiveness. And uh -huh. I'm saying, you don't have to prove yourself to me. 
our egos are not a It's kind of like saying egos not. Allowed. I'm not trying to win. You're not trying to win. Just think about this, and then mm-hmm. I'll beg off there. You know, just let it go. Then how about them Dodgers or something like that? You know, going, <laughs> okay change right the topic. Now, give them a little bit of a breather. I give them some room. I'm not trying to accomplish too much. And that's just my style, but I find that that's persuasive too. And so you can see there's kind of a gentleness that's involved there and a patience. And I think maybe if I were looking for one word, it would be somewhere in that kind of word cluster. Great. Very good. Thanks. I mean, this is nothing to do. Are you a Dodgers fan? Actually, no. Um, I'm not a fan (laughs) of any sports team, but I live in LA and my daughter is a Dodgers fan. And she really liked the guy who used to lick his bat, which I thought that was dumb. But now he's gone from the Dodgers, so good for him. Good for the Dodgers, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But uh, but I guess they're doing, you know, they're they're kind of still in play here in October. Um, yeah. And so I kind of root with her for them. And that's it. I mean, I just know that from her, basically. So I'm not. Mm-hmm. I root for the home. And I'll watch, look at I watch the Super Bowl. And, uh, and then I watch the World Series. Why? Because it's the top of the, they got the best of the best playing at the top. So that's cool for me. And uh, I like that. And I sometimes watch the tennis matches. I was a I was a competitive tennis player for almost 20 years. So back mm-hmm. in that former former life. So sometimes I watch that. But I don't like not only do I not recognize the names anymore, I cannot pronounce them. Yep. <laughs> it's true. So it's uh, true. but I do I do appreciate excence. I didn't watch the Olympics though because it was too political. It really just was. forget about that. Really I'm done was. with this. I'm done yep. with this. I don't want to I've see men of, competing against women, for mm-hmm. example. Kind of just, just been done please. with most sports, period, because of the yeah. same reason. But yeah. Anyway, what so, else do we have? As you were as you were talking there, it just made me think of. I I think in Douglas Wilson's book, there's a book that just came out, uh, refuting the new atheists, and I think that's kind of the point he makes early on in that book is, you know if we are just a bunch of pieces of meat, why do you care what I believe? Yeah. You know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. why do you care that I have a differing view than you if we're all just materialists? So that, that's, that's a, that's a kind of a subset of the taking the roof off. If this is yeah. really accurate, then how do you get to this other destination? You can't yeah. get there from here. You're going to get in a, a different destination and that's not so satisfying. By the way, I, I don't, this is something I don't understand either. Why is it, I mean, there is a kind of answer, which I'll offer, but in one sense, why why do atheists care so much about, why are they so, some yes. of them, so evangelistic? You know, well, it might be because they are they are utter relativists when it comes to morality, so they, they would have to be, that's consistent. Um, even if they go to the evolution route for morality, that's still just another form of relativism. You can't ground objective morality in atheism. So they can't say, well, you guys are are wrong intellectually, so you're doing wrong morally to other people. Well, that's not going to work. Okay, that doesn't go through. Okay, what they can say is, well, I don't like it. Okay, well, that works. Well, I don't <laughs> know why anybody should care what you don't like. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, I mean, if because you, you can't presume I have a moral obligation to care about what you like. And a lot of times that kind of thing is smuggled in there. And that's where questions can tease some of that out. Well, you, you don't like that. Is that bad? Yeah, it's bad. Well, when you say bad, do you mean I'm doing something wrong and it's evidenced by you not liking it? Or are you just saying like, I don't like Brussels sprouts either if, or liver, right? Mm. If it's a Brussels sprouts or liver thing, I'm sorry, but you know, so what? But I think you yeah. mean something different. And by the way, just no added, an extra charge for this one. 
And this is from Francis Schaeffer. <laughs> There's a reason why atheists who can't ground these notions they seem to be subtly advancing do so. And it's because they actually are made the image of God and they have to live in God's world. Yes. I do you think they're out. trying do you think they're right. trying to convince themselves and that's why they're so evangelistic? It's like just this, Oh, that's another that's another or maybe point. is it their their pride that's just driving them to my suspicion okay. is more that. I mean, I, I think a presupp is going to, and that's, it sounds like you're sympathetic to the presuppositionalism, and that would fit. Oh, you really know the truth, but you're just making all this noise to, to drown out the inner voice, you know, about what you really know to be so, you know, suppressing the truth and unrighteous and everything. It's not my sense that that's what's going on. I just think it's uh, um, simple sin nature, ego, this is what they believe. I mean, I think there's some truth to that broader claim, you know, people deep down as I do know, I think that's what Romans 1 is getting at. But I don't think it's, a, I think it's a dispositional belief. I don't think it's, in many cases, it's not right there and they're, they're consciously putting it away. They're just saying, hey, I got a deal and my deal is me, okay? And this stuff doesn't help me in the way I want to help me, so I'm not going there. It's false. And they fight against that. And for some of them, there's an ego thing. They got strong egos. They write books. They sell. They sell books, and now they're popular and well known. And I think that's a factor as well. But it all amounts to you know sin. So anyway, Andy. Yeah. I have a a, for, a former atheist friend who's now a pastor, and it's interesting. He he became a Satanist at one point, and in the moment of being a Satanist and an atheist, um, it was the kind of Satanism where you're just opposed to all morality, basically. Yeah. Right. Right. Um he i don't think he would have said in that moment he was thinking i know there's a god i'm mm -hmm. suppressing this he had reasons he was following that but then as the lord worked through friends who shared the gospel and asked him questions looking back i think he agreed with you know i knew but i didn't want it to be true but it's like in the moment of self-deception i don't think any atheist is thinking yeah. i know there's a god you know that's but, why I call it a dis dispositional belief. It's it is okay. down there and it's real, but it's they, they don't have access to it. They've there's mm -hmm. all kinds of other noise going on in their head mm -hmm. and rebellion and stuff like that. Which is which is why I don't think as a apologetic method going directly to that thing is going to be yeah. productive, you know. But here, think about this. I made a reference to a tactic that I call inside out. All right. It's in the it's in the tenth anniversary edition of the book. The one that you're holding, you were holding up there just a moment ago. Timothy has got this little red thing here. So, and it's also a lot thicker than the other one because I got like 35% more material. But the inside out tactic, which is a new tactic I added, is just the idea that human beings, as Schaefer pointed out, are made the image of God. And that's why, even though they deny God, there are certain things that are at home in a Christian worldview and not in an atheistic worldview that even atheists are going to affirm when they're not defending turf. Okay, so you've got somebody like Richard Dawkins who can say that this universe is the kind of universe you'd expect if there was no God. Uh, it is there no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, that would be consistent with an atheistic, materialistic view of reality. However, when he writes The God Delusion, he takes the God of the Old Testament to task because he's really a bad God. And he's got this Actually, I think a very well-written paragraph where he assails the guy. He's homophobic and, you know, whatever. Yeah. He goes into all these adjectives. But wait a minute. That makes no sense in light of his atheism. He's speaking as a common-sense moral realist there. In other words, he's trading on our worldview in the sense that our worldview right. 
uh, it has a place for moral categories like he's using. I don't think it's an accurate application of criticism of God, but he's working with moral categories that make sense in a theistic worldview, make no sense in his. Why is he doing that? He's living in both worlds. Uh, Schaefer called this the point of tension. On the mm -hmm. one hand, he says this. On another hand, he says this. You know, it's his philosophy speaking here, and it's the image of God in man that cannot be repressed. Can't let go That's of it. The, the inside out. Whatever's on the inside, mm -hmm. it's going to come out. And our job is just to watch for it and then ask questions about it. Mm. Man, is, is there a book called Living in Both Worlds? That's a really nice title. <laughs> I mean, All I've got to say is that if you have the first edition of Tactics, you need to get the updated <laughs> one because it has 35% more content. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. There you go. I, I Thirty-five percent okay, more for 35% off, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I think you no. just did something there, Carter. Oh, yeah. My word. Oh, my word. Put it on the Christmas we, list. There you go. We, oh, don't say that. It's only like, what, 12 weeks away. That's really scary. No, it's about, no, it's less than it's that. It's less than that. It's like 10 weeks. Oh, man. You ruined my and day. Actually, I think this is going to, this episode will probably drop around that season. Yeah. Because it's going to yeah. be oh, that's right. in December. So, hey, maybe that's a prophetic that's little right. Boom, there. boom. Now the listeners for, know. <laughs> for your final shopping. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I just, I have one more. On that note, I have one more question. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. And uh, if, if, you're, if you're trying to keep along, listener, with where we're at with the book, we've mentioned a few of the tactics specifically mm -hmm. that are in the book. And uh, we talked about really the first part of the book is about asking questions. And uh, so we've, we've interacted with that. But I mean, there's nothing comparable to just getting the book and reading it. And uh, I, I will say I have really appreciated the emphasis. And you've used the illustrations with us, the gardening idea. Mm -hmm. I think that's phenomenal. My, my dad was a farmer and it, it's, you know, OK, there's a lot of things you do as a farmer that aren't, you know, grabbing corn off the ear. OK. Uh, in fact, most of the work is not harvesting. And so I really right. appreciate that, that illustration. And uh, I think that's true in apologetics. I think it's true. Uh, whatever field of ministry you want to really apply yourself in, evangelism, discipleship, whatever, uh, most of the work is not reaping. Um, and so, but anyway, as you think about apologetics and uh, some of the things we've talked about, we've talked about you know, refuting atheists. And we've talked about, you know, presuppositional, evidential, classical apologetics, kind of all of these different things. Could you maybe give us like, uh, I mean, we, we kind of have everyone that listens to this. There's some that are Bible college students, some are not. So what would be some good resources, some places like uh, that someone could start, maybe good books, good authors, YouTube videos. I know we have a really great podcast they can listen to. Uh, but uh, what, what would be something for like a high school level student, maybe someone at college, and then maybe some advanced things, uh, any resources that come to your mind? Well, uh, in some ways, this is easy to answer um, because I have two resources with my name on them. You know, now that's <laughs> that that uh, I'll, I'll just say uh, most of you know who Jay Warner Wallace is. OK, so he's got his own books. He's a bestselling author. <clears throat> but he says he recommends my the, the tactics book more than anyone else. David Wood, who you might know as a YouTuber, yeah. okay, and and David did a, like a thirty five minute rant in favor of tactics, and he said this is the only book that I recommend mm -hmm. to everybody. 
and mm. uh, Frank Turek yep. says the same thing, and and Jim does, and so I, I'm just this is what they're saying. Now I I'm the author, so I agree with them, but I it's not it's not just you know author pride speaking here. I think so. Uh, I I think getting the tactics book is really important. All right. Uh, because even if you don't know anything about apologetics, this will help you, as I mentioned before, to get in the shallow end of the pool and start making a difference. And by the way, since you are asking questions, it is a thing that will give you a tutorial on other people's views. This you're going to talk to other people. You want to deal with their views. This is how you find out what their views are. I also <clears throat> I also mentioned the book briefly, the story of reality. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book. It was award winner. It was the in the evangelism really category. It was, it was a book of the year, like what four years ago, in the event according to Christianity Today and also the Gospel Coalition. So two different categories, two different agencies. Now the reason I mention that is because if you don't understand Christianity, then you don't understand what you need to defend. If we are making a defense for the Christian worldview, but we don't really have a, a a reasonably robust understanding. When I say reasonably robust, I don't mean that you go really, really deep in theology. I mean that you go solid across the board from beginning to end. You get a picture of how this all works together. And I don't think most Christians have that. Okay. So I'm going to suggest uh, the story of reality for your listeners' considerations. And and by the way, both of these books, you go to Amazon. I'm not saying you should buy them there. I think you should buy them from you guys. But if you look at the assessments, both are uh, five stars across the board. I mean, not every single one. It's like 4.9 average. So that means people is be are benefiting from it. Okay, now having said that, um, I think C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is one of the best things ever written uh, in this area. One of the reasons I wrote the story of reality was to speak to the niche that that book speaks to for people who, it's painful to say, but can't read Lewis. Like, what? Oh, Excuse yeah. me? Yeah, he's really too hard. What did you say? <laughs> Lewis is one of the most lucid writers I've ever read, even Absolutely. on difficult topics. Oh, yeah. So this is just a sign of the times. And so, okay, it is what it is. And I was, I was speaking to that need with the story of reality. Uh, and like Lewis, I wrote this for the non-Christian, the Christian. You're not going to get a, a lot of Christian lingo in there. It's you, You're not going to be ashamed of giving this book to a non-Christian. And I think the tr same thing is true of mere Christianity. But Lewis is going to give you a whole lot more stuff, all right? And I don't agree with everything that Lewis does, but I'm not going to cross swords with him very often. This is not, uh, <laughs> this is not smart. So, uh, so I think that's a great book, and I think people should read that. That's a, a good foundational book. Frank Turek's got a great book, titled uh i don't have enough faith to be an atheist he, he he wrote that with the late norm geisler and it covers a lot of ground too if you want a you know a broad-based general apologetics book there's a lot of those out there uh i that that i could recommend those tend to be sometimes a little bit more challenging because apologetics you know it is kind of a philosophical trades on philosophical ideas and other things like historical issues and the like. So it's a very, very broad-based thing. And if you start working in any particular area, like science stuff or the textual criticism stuff or the, you know, the atheist stuff, well, there's a, there's a lot of depth in a lot of these books, and it can be a little overwhelming. However, I do have 
a book back there somewhere that uh, <laughs> I thought that was a background. Yeah, it is, but <laughs> this background is so good. Uh, like a hologram, like in, like a holodeck okay, in Star Trek. Uh, I think this book is titled "Thinking About God." <clears throat> okay, now this is written by a philosopher, but it's very, very accessible, and it's kind of an introduction to philosophy of religion. And Greg Gansel is the author. He's over at Talbot. Oh yeah, G A N S S G A N S S L E. Okay, and um, a, a little a little background information. You guys know as well as writers, voice is really important in a in a writing. In a book, um, when you're really looking hard to make your book accessible. So when I had read Greg Gansel's book, uh, Thinking About God, I really liked Greg's voice. And it was similar to mine, but it was more a little more relaxed. And so when I would, before I would write um, the first edition of Tactics, I would read Greg Gansel. I'd read two huh. or three pages, and I'd just try to get into Gansel's verbal rhythm. All right. And then I'd go to my work. And ironically, one of the first people to review tactics when the first edition came out was Greg Gansel. <laughs> he re reviewed it for Ratio Christi, or for other for Philosophia Christi, and he really liked it. He gave it you know thumbs up. So when I saw him next time, I said, "Thanks, Greg, uh, appreciate that." But you got to know. And then I told him the story, so he had a good chuckle out of it. But when I wrote the story of reality, because I was looking for a different voice, I was I was trying to channel C.S. Lewis. I would listen to a British guy reading. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Ah. And this mm. is a, a, a way just to get that voice in, inside of me. I didn't want to be him. I wanted to be me that sounded like him a little bit. And that really had a big influence on the, uh, I think, on the tone of the voice uh, of the book as I wordsmith. So, uh, but Gansel's book, I'd recommend. I love mm. that book. And it covers some of the basic things that you that you run into in the philosophy of religion. Problem of evil and you know, the existence of God and how the world, cosmological kind of argument, but it's very accessible. Middle schooler can read that and hmm. make sense out of it. It's a rare I'm gift sold. that a philosopher can write that, like that, but Gansel is very good. So we actually, and we already mentioned that this episode's probably not getting posted until December, but just this, this week, we had an episode with one of our other faculty members, uh, Dr. Josh Boyd, and he's a literature professor. And we got into this discussion. It was about... Josh and not Greg. I heard Dr. Boyd there. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, not that one. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm not going to make no. a fuss here. But, but no, I'm no, glad no. to hear that. Yes, no. Josh, Josh Boyd. And he talked about in classical education how people actually learn to be good writers by mimicking yeah. other good writers. And I just find it fascinating that here, you know, you you are an accomplished writer you've published but then you you pull the curtain back and you're doing what educators have done for hundreds if not thousands of years yeah. which is identifying lewis as a savant you know mm -hmm. and and we want to try and mimic he's that an, he's an alien from another planet he is oh Mel melchandra i believe is the name yes <laughs> <laughs> maybe he probably say paralander but yeah. eh, you know one of the, one of those he was pretty silent on the issue, so. Oh, um, oh that was well played. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I just eye rolled myself. That's that's you low did. hanging fruit. But, well, okay. Thank you so much, uh, Greg, for coming Thank on. You. This has been so much fun. It's been informative, and uh, I'll give I'll I'll throw the ball back to Andy and Tim. If you have any closing questions or ideas mm -hmm. you'd like to throw in, 
speak now or forever hold your peace, but we're very thankful that you uh, came on to our, to our yeah. podcast. We know our listeners will benefit from this. So thank you. Thank you, sir. I've really appreciated it. I'm, I think I'm geeking out the most because I've read your books and I teach mm -hmm. this stuff and you've been a big help to me. So thank you. Thanks. I appreciate what you're doing and I, I hope you keep the ministry going. Well, and I mean, hey, you look good really for sweet. 71, man. I don't, thank you. I don't see that ending anytime soon. So uh, thank you. Well, thank, thank you. And uh, actually, this is not even me. It's a screen from uh, Zoom. You know, you can get those too. So you can have somebody <laughs> else's face put in there. But um, uh, so are you, you guys have been alien? great. And I've had... <laughs> This has been fabulous. I've had so much fun. It's like hanging out with a couple of buddies and just carrying on and uh, talking about things we care about and letting other people listen mm -hmm. over our shoulders. Hey, I do have one yeah. more little anecdote if you want to hear it about writing. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Okay. Lewis oh, was a help, and so was Gansel, but the Cone brothers were as well. You know who those guys are? They're directors. The Cone brothers. They make kind of weird movies like The Big... The, the Big Lebowski and oh, yeah. uh, Brother Where Out Thou and True Grit. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. I, I really, their, their movies are true. Grit is one of my favorite movies though. It, not the old one, the new one, the new one, okay. just, the new one just blows the old one out of the water, the acting and the character, all of that. But wow. I noticed something in this movie I'd never seen in a Western. And, uh, it's, I noticed that they didn't use hardly any contractions in the dialogue, no contractions. So instead of saying they didn't use hardly any contractions, I would say they, didn't, they did not use they did any not. contractions. And what it did is it did two things. It slowed the dialogue down a little bit, and it also made everybody there, these rough and ready cowboys, sound more educated, noble. Oh. It just has this subtle effect. But so I do you write it. with contractions? Pardon me? Do you write with contractions? Everybody does. It's standard. You know, sometimes you don't use it if you want to... Do not write with contractions that make, you know, you, you've moved the contraction out to emphasize the not and make the point. That's part of your wordsmithing. However, mm -hmm. I just like the overall effect. So I, this is something I decided to do with the story of reality. I removed most of the contractions. I slowed the whole thing down and it made it much, I'm not exactly sure. It, it Let me just say it, it changed the tone. And I think wow. in a good way. Now, maybe I removed too many of them. Sometimes I think that, but it really changed the tone and it slowed it down. And, uh, and I think that really lent more readability to the text. So it's just a mm. little crazy thing. You're talking about the craft and pulling. The no, it's for real. It's a real Lewis thing. I mean, and Gansel. Yeah. The code brothers too, you know, cause they're the <laughs> one, they, they usually write their scripts, you know, and, uh, um, Fargo, they did Fargo as well. So they had oh, yeah. kind of screwy things. But uh, True Grit is magnificent. It is just a magnificent piece of work. And you won't be embarrassed to, to watch it. It is a little gruesome, okay? So they have very realistic violence, gunshot violence and stuff like that. But there was there was this thing. And I thought, what? all these bad guys sounded so noble. What is he doing? And then I realized no contractions or almost uh. no contractions. So I thought, well, that was clever. And Academically... So I don't use contractions. I'm right <laughs> now. I don't like. There's no contractions, and I even tell people they shouldn't. Popular level. Well, this is I'm a suicide situation, on... of course. <laughs> He's watching. Yes, only read half the book. But this up is in his ivory is... tower. <laughs> but this is popular. In the popular book that I'm writing right now, I'm intentionally using contractions because I thought that that was just a more casual manner of writing. And so, anyway, you just kind of throw them in. 
well, throwing no, a I, wrench I, I, into I, that I, now. No, but but see, this is what you have to ask yourself. What am I trying to accomplish with the piece, with this project? Right. What am I shooting for? What am I trying to do? I was trying to give a stable, thoughtful, timeless feel to this. I want an evergreen book. I wanted to be around for 50 years and, and I wanted it to speak in a, in a s- thoughtful way without sounding solemn, but in a relaxed, thoughtful way. And so if you're talking to a lot of young people, you know, maybe, or that's who your audience is. It is. The younger people are the audience. Yeah. Then you, 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 if you, you know, maybe you speed things up. All right. Okay. You throw in some words like, like groovy and far out and those kind of things uh, that are really hip nowadays that uh, young people really understand. I'm going <laughs> to have problems with that. <laughs> oh, for those maybe people to- who are young, who are listening, th- these are terms from the 60s that yeah. are long gone and probably <laughs> that's a good thing all right but uh so you, you have to decide you 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 got to listen to your words uh, you know read them aloud and just say what, what am i trying to accomplish and so then then write accordingly awesome. man the only Thank thing you. i can think of there is we were just having a conversation about contractions and then you started talking about being hip and I was trying to come up with some kind of a pun where I could say hip, do not lie, because it's hips don't lie. But I don't think I can work that in. So oh, wow. <laughs> I don't I, I'm not sure I even get that joke. The, the only hip one I know is like you got your chips and you got your dips and then you got your hips. <laughs> oh man, wow. Okay, we so, need to end. <laughs> this is so that's great. The only, that's the only hip joke I know. This I think is, they'll, I think there'll be some young people who understand my reference to hips don't lie. It's 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 also a musical reference. But, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, or as, I as am I not like a to, pop culture guy. What I like to tell right. uh, either students or young people at my church, I will say before I'm about to quote some pop song, uh, which I do not listen to, but you know, it just you sit in a coffee shop long enough, you learn things. But uh, I'll say in the words of the modern prophet, hips <laughs> yeah. hips don't lie. But uh, anyway. So, yes, thank you, Greg, for being here. And uh, we uh, talking about Lewis. Th- this is exactly what I feel if you were at the Burden Baby or the Eagle and Child in the 30s and 40s with right. Lewis and Tolkien and all the other boys. I feel like this is what those. Uh, I think they actually did get together on Thursday evenings, ironically enough. Huh. And uh, I think this is exactly how that would have felt. Uh, and so thank you for fellowshipping with us and having fun and we'll look forward to having you back again. Yeah. And remember Lewis, mere Christianity first did on radio. So this was a popular work. He was speaking to the people at the mm-hmm. time. Yes. So, and I've had a great time. So anytime you want to hang out together, by the way, where are you guys, where are you located geographically? Are you all in the same town or are you spread mm-hmm. all over or where? So yeah. Andy is just, uh, I got to point the right way. He's about like 30 yards over here. Uh, We're across we, the hallway. Yeah. Uh, so Faith Baptist Bible College and uh, Tim is primarily in the, the seminary. We're in Ankeny, Iowa, which is uh, essentially just uh, it, there's no division now between Des Moines, Iowa and Ankeny, Iowa, you. just mm-hmm. a northern suburb about five, 10 minutes up. Yeah. And we, so if you ever fly into Des Moines, you let us know and we'll we'll take you to a cornfield or show you some pigs or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. I, look at I spent the first five years of my life on a farm in uh, northern Wisconsin. Okay. Mm. Oh, and yeah. so wow. uh, before I moved to the big city, but um, you you guys are striking distance from uh, Minneapolis, and we've got an event coming up in. Well, well, it's going to be once this is aired, it's going to be over with. But uh, we have it coming up in the third weekend of 
November, and we already have 2,000, almost 200 young people huh. signed up for it four weeks in wow. advance. And That's we're shooting awesome. for middle schoolers and high schoolers. Uh, so we just did one in Seattle. We did one in Orange County already in MSP. Then we're going to be in Dallas in February. And uh, then in March and April, we're going to be, I don't know which one's which, but we're going to be in Augusta, Georgia and Philly. So this is ah. to pass the baton to the next generation. That's what we're doing. Maybe we, awesome. should, we, should, we should start to figure out who I need to talk to. We get you into Des Moines sometime. And uh, that'd okay. be awesome. Yeah. People ask me, why, why don't you come to my church? I said, I go where I'm asked. Nobody asked me. So there you go. Carter here <laughs> in charge. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. <laughs> well, again, thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. A lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.